2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9 say this, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Will you pray with me? Lord, we bow before you once more. We've sung of hope. We've sung of gospel. We've sung of love. And I pray now that as we open your word, walking through your New Testament, that we will see the grounds and the foundation for that hope. And that's our prayer in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen. You can be seated. Every building has a blueprint. Let me just ask you in general, how many of you would like to walk around in any sort of modern building built without blueprints? Would have you any takers on that? That sound like a good idea? If you thought this building had no blueprints, how would you feel? Concerned, right? Now, while you might very much enjoy any work of architecture simply by looking at it on its surface, looking at the pretty walls and pretty windows and vaulted ceilings and all the rest, if you want to understand a building, if you want to appreciate it and all of the intricate construction, you benefit when you see the original plans, when you know how the blueprints are laid out. And if you don't believe me, ask Eric Toomey. Now, in Scripture... We see the people of God sometimes described as a temple. Did you know that? A beautiful building brought together for the glory of Almighty God. Peter says to us, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. 1 Peter 2.5 Well, what we've been doing over the past couple of weeks has been looking at the blueprint behind the building. We've been examining the eternal plan of salvation that God devised before anything was ever created. We've looked into the mystery of the covenant of redemption, what some call the pactum salutis. Now, all of this work, the last two weeks and this week, these are laying the foundations for a greater look at the whole story of Scripture. I hadn't thought about it this way, but these are sort of the prequels right now to the real story. Over the next several weeks, we're going to take a big picture survey of the Bible from beginning all the way to the end. And the way we're going to do it is by looking at several significant biblical covenants. Remember this, a covenant is a binding relationship-based agreement. It's a promise, but it's stronger. It's a contract, but more personal. It's based more firmly on an established relationship. And understanding key covenants throughout the scripture helps us to understand the structure, story, purpose of the Bible. The study that we'll go through in the coming weeks, if you count this week as the prequels as well, we'll go through seven key covenants. The covenant of redemption, the Adamic covenant, The Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and the New Covenant. 
built into all of this is covenant of works and covenant of graves and covenant of redemption, all that stuff. So don't get lost there. But this morning, before we get deep into the story, before we explore the beauty of the building, I want to take one final look at the blueprints. I want us to see some final evidence for explanations of the covenant of redemption. We've seen the covenant in a variety of Old Testament scriptures and throughout the gospel according to John. Now this morning, we're going to see it in some other key passages in the rest of the New Testament that I believe will help us to greatly appreciate the plan God set in motion even before time began. So does that sound okay to you guys, by the way? You're not tired of this yet? Okay. Now, Here's, I want you to understand what I'm doing here. My hope here is that all of us would be overwhelmed with the utter clarity and the consistency of biblical proclamation about this eternal plan of God. I want you to say by the time we're done, okay, okay, I get it, it's there. Because when the Bible speaks super clearly about something from beginning to end, it matters. With me? Okay, so as before, one last time, we're going to try to answer three questions. One, what is the covenant of redemption? Two, where is the covenant of redemption found in Scripture? And three, why is the covenant of redemption important to Christians? So first, what is the covenant of redemption? I'm so tempted just to make one of you guys tell me because I've done it two weeks in a row, but I'm not that kind of guy. The covenant of redemption is the agreement made in eternity past between the persons of the Holy Trinity to accomplish God's plan of salvation, his plan to redeem for himself a people. This plan is eternal. It's put in place by God before creation, thus before the fall of mankind. God the Father elects the people to salvation and sends forth his Son to accomplish their redemption. The Father also promises the Son a glorious reward for his participation in and completion of the mission. God the Son is willingly sent by the Father to accomplish the redemption of those elected by the Father. God the Holy Spirit causes the incarnation of the Son... He aids the Son in his earthly ministry, applies redemption to and seals those elected by the Father and redeemed by the Son. If I had asked you what is the covenant of redemption, I expect that's the answer you would have given me, right? You betcha. Where is the covenant of redemption found in Scripture? We looked in the Old Testament We looked in John's telling of the gospel to see the pact between the persons of the one true God. Today I thought, why don't we round out our study with some key passages from the rest of the New Testament. So, you ready to go and flip pages? Matthew chapter 1. How many of you are flipping pages? How many of you are pushing cell phones? Scrolling is fine, I'm not mad at you. Matthew chapter 1, look down at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, 
She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Note here that the Son of God was conceived by the Holy Spirit. I'm simply making sure that we don't miss the fact that the Spirit fulfills His role in the accomplishment of the ministry of Jesus Christ. One of the things that's essential in understanding the eternal plan of redemption is that each person of the Holy Trinity, while accomplishing the singular united will of God, each person will play a particular role. For example, God the Father does not die for sinners. The Son does. The Son does not cause his own conception. The Spirit does. All of this is planned out by God before he ever made the universe. Luke chapter 22. Flip to Luke 22. There'll be a lot of these, by the way. If if you want to write things down, that's fine and look them up later, but you guys like turning pages anyway, don't you? You dig it. Luke 22, verses 28 and 29. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. Here Jesus speaks of rewarding his disciples for their faithfulness. Notice that the reward that Jesus is going to give his disciples... Assigning them a kingdom is a parallel to the reward that he receives from his father for his faithfully fulfilling the mission he was sent to accomplish. Now, unless that's all random and reactionary, this is the mission agreed upon among the persons of the Trinity before creation, the covenant of redemption. And this promise of a kingdom with Christ as the king may also bring to your mind Psalm chapter or Psalm 2, not chapter. There's no chapters in Psalm. This may bring to your mind Psalm 2. You don't have to turn there. It'll take too long. But listen to Psalm 2, 6 through 8, while you think about this Luke 22 passage. Psalm 2, 6 through 8 reads, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Psalm 2, verse 7, we see a reference to the decree that the son would be king. And this decree took place when? When do you think God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit decided that Jesus would be king? Before time began. It has to be eternity past. This is not some post-creation decree. And the decree that the son would be the king results in a reward. Psalm 2 verse 8 says to us again, If the son asks of him, the father will make the nations his heritage and reward. Thus, just as in Luke 22, where Jesus says he is assigned a kingdom by his father for his obedience, we see that the eternal decree of God is that the son will be given his kingdom, the elect of all nations, as a reward for fulfilling the plan of redemption. You tracking there? Now we could look at more places in the Gospels, but... All of last week walked through just one gospel and exposed the plan. So let's move on to the epistles and to the book of Revelation by having you go to the book of Ephesians. 
Turn now to the opening of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we're going to see a few undeniable truths that will confirm for us and explain to us the covenant of redemption. Have you found Ephesians chapter 1? Okay, look at verse 3. Again, I feel extra teachy today, but this is what we've got, right? Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings, blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Do you guys already hear, even if I don't say them, do you hear pactum things, covenant of redemption things, ringing bells in your ears as you read that? I hope so. Verse 3 makes plain that we're talking in this section about the work of God the Father. Verses 7 to 12 are going to show the work of the Son. Verses 13 to 14 are going to show us the Spirit. In verse 4, the Word of God tells us that God the Father chose His people when? Talk to me. When? Before the foundation of the world. There is a clear claim that the Father elected a people for redemption, for salvation, before creation. Verse 5. The Father predestined his people to redemption. And he did it based on the work he was sending Jesus to do. Clearly, the Bible teaches us the Father before creation, elected a people for redemption, and this redemption would be accomplished through him sending his son. Now look at 7 through 12. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So how does our redemption, our salvation, come to us? It comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's verse 7. In verses 9 and 10, we see that this redeeming work of Christ is the mystery of God. It's the truth that's present but hidden in the Old Testament. Now it's been revealed. This plan is about the fullness of time, the completion of time. God accomplishing everything he ever planned to accomplish. Now look at 11 and 12 really quickly. God calls this predestination a plan. He calls, he calls this, this whole concept predestination. I said that poorly. God calls this plan predestination. Predestination is a plan for our eternal final outcome made beforehand by God. 
You can see that this is according to the counsel of God's will because the united persons of the Holy Trinity together will and elect that those predestined by the Father will be redeemed by the Son. Now, real quick, biblically, when you see reference made to something happening in accord with the counsel of the will of God, counsel there, that should ring some covenant bells in your head. Because you can find in the Old Testament that at times the concept of, quote, taking counsel together is connected to coming to an agreement, a sworn oath, a covenant. Listen as I read to you Zechariah 6, verses 12 and 13. Zechariah 6, 12 and 13. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Zechariah says there are some clear promises here of the Messiah to come. The branch language that's pointing us to the promised priest king from God. And notice that not only will the branch build the temple of God for God's worship, but the council of peace shall be between them both. The council of peace is a reference here to an eternal council, a forever covenant between God the Father and the branch, the Messiah, God the Son. Now, the last two verses of our Ephesians 1 passage, 13 and 14. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession, we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So, in the very same breath, as God talks about the eternal plan of redemption, we see that those for whom Christ accomplished redemption are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God and kept by the Holy Spirit of God for eternity. So what do we see in Ephesians 1, 3 through 12? The Father elects, the Son redeems, the Spirit applies redemption, sealing the saved setting them apart for God and keeping them forever. You know what we call that? That's the covenant of redemption. I think it's right there in one single passage that this is a plan of God that has existed from eternity past. Interesting? Still with me? Go to chapter 3, Ephesians 3. We'll go down to... Verses 8 through 12. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose 
that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Take note of two concepts real quickly. We're going to start moving faster today. Verse 9, Paul says he's been blessed to proclaim the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. This mystery has to do with God's perfect eternal plan to redeem for himself a people made up of people from all nations. Then verse 11, Paul mentions the eternal purpose he's realized in Christ Jesus. And I want you to underscore that word eternal. This is not a plan that God purposed in time. God did not come up with this plan after creation. God has always had this eternal purpose, agreeing among the persons of the Trinity in that singularly united will to create and to redeem as an act of love and a display of glory. Now go to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Chapter 2. In Philippians 2, we see another aspect of the covenant of redemption that we've only mentioned. In Ephesians, we focus particularly on the involvement of the persons of the Trinity in the eternal plan. We focus on the eternality of the plan. But now, we're going to notice the fact that this work performed by Jesus results in a reward for Jesus accomplishing his mission, as we talk about in our definition of the covenant of redemption. So look at Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we take a quick look at a very familiar passage. Notice a couple of things. Verse 8. We see that Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Stop and ask yourself, what exactly did Jesus obey? There's not some Old Testament scripture that says, not some law that says or demands that, hey, you all have to willingly walk to a cross for the good of of God's elect. You notice there's no Old Testament scripture that says everyone should do that, right? The reason I point that out is this is not a reference to Jesus obeying the written law of God. What did Jesus obey? He obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross. What did he obey? The obedience of the Savior here is undoubtedly his obedience to being sent by his Father. Before there was time, God the Father and God the Son agreed that the Father would send the Son to redeem the elect. 
Jesus obeyed that agreement to such a stunning degree that he was willing to assume human form. He was willing to behave as a servant, the promised servant in the book of Isaiah, and actually die on a cross out of obedience to the plan of God. Then look at what is the result of the obedience of the Son to the eternal sending of the Father. Because of all this, because of the Son's faithful obedience, the Father has exalted the Son. The Father has granted that the Son's name is above every name. The Father has decreed an an unbreakable sovereign word that at the name of Jesus, every knee of every created person from every era in history will bow to Jesus. Because of the Son's obedience, the Father has decreed that every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. What is that, friends? That's the eternal agreement of the Father sending the Son and promising the Son a particular reward for His obedience to that sending. The covenant of redemption. Now, we're going to do a few more that will hammer home for us the eternality of this plan of God. And then we'll answer the third question of why this matters. So here we go. This is the lightning round. You can turn pages or you can just listen. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. I've read it for you every week. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Are you there who are turning to it? Anybody still need time? Okay, here we go. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Do you see this now? Which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God saved us. We didn't save ourselves. God saved us based on his own purpose, not based on our works. We did not behave well enough to make ourselves desirable to God. Instead, God had a plan. God had a purpose. And that plan and that purpose is that God would save us by grace. And notice particularly when this plan of redemption was put together and who was involved in putting the plan together. This is clearly a plan between God the Father and God the Son. This grace is in Christ. Jesus. It's a plan developed when? Before the ages began. Now, Titus 1, 1 through 3. Titus 1, 1 through 3. It's only one book over. You can get there fast, right? Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life with which God, who never lies, promised. Can you see when God promised it already? Promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. 
So Paul opens the letter to Titus here and he spells out to his pieces of the eternal covenant of redemption. The good news is who, for whom? It's for the elect of God, those chosen by God as we saw in Ephesians chapter one. And the promise was made by God when before the ages began. Again, ask yourself, if God promised redemption before the ages began, bless you twice, if God promised redemption before the ages began, ask this, to whom did God make that promise? God the Father did not make that promise of redemption to you or me because we hadn't been created yet. He didn't promise the angels because the angels also had not yet been created. He did not promise the rocks and the trees or the stars and the skies because they had not yet been created. The only thing this passage can mean is that God promised the redemption of the elect before the ages began by making a promise to himself. This is a promise made among the persons of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, promising God the Son, promising God the Spirit, promising God the Father to pull off this grand, glorious plan. That promise, an oath taken among persons in a relationship, I think is rightly labeled the covenant, which is why we call it the covenant of redemption. Hebrews chapter 1, moving on. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So verse 2 of Hebrews 1, two things to see about the son of God. One, the son is the one through whom God created all things. And we see that the father appointed the son as the heir, the one who receives ownership of all things. Ask yourself this. When did the father decide that the son would be the heir of all things? Did the father not have that figured out until after the cross? No way. This appointment was a part of the eternal plan of God. The son would obediently come to earth, redeem the elect, and receive as a reward all things, including his elect people. Now go to Hebrews 6. I told you we're in the lightning round now, right? Hebrews 6, verses 21 and 22. But this one was made a priest with an oath. Hebrews 6, 21, 22, by the way, in case you missed that, I heard somebody figuring it out. What's that? Did I say 5, 21 and 22? Is that what I need? How do I have a wrong reference here? All right, somebody look this one up and figure out what I'm missing. Because I have the wrong reference written down, but I've got scripture written down. What verse says, but this one was made a priest with an oath? Seven. Seven. Well, that's good. Watch your pastor change his notes on his computer. <laughs> Sorry about that. But see, this is why you Bereans pay attention, Right? How about if I said Hebrews 7, 21 to 22? Would that make you feel better? Man, you guys are so picky. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. How oh, that does make me feel better too. In Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, all three chapters, 
the author points to the promise of Psalm 110, which is that Jesus will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is, therefore, the guarantor of a covenant that is greater than the covenant that God made at Mount Sinai, far greater than the covenant that God used that put together the Old Testament sacrificial system and the Aaronic Levitical priesthood. Now, when did God swear this stuff about his son? There's no spot in the Old Testament that shows us a particular moment when, within the bounds of time, God appointed that Jesus would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Instead, this points us to the eternality of the plan of God because the priest that Jesus is is to, to fulfill the sign of is someone who has no beginning. He's an eternal priest. 7.3, Hebrews 7.3 would tell you that. All right, we're almost done. Revelation 13, 8. We're going to do Revelation 13 and Revelation 17. I want you to look at the names of those who are saved written in the book of God. It's going to come out as a negative, but it assumes the positive, if that makes sense to you. Revelation 13, 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, the evil beast, Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Who will worship the beast in Revelation 13? Everyone whose name has not been written beforehand in the salvation, sorry, before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If you flip to Revelation 17, 8, the verse ends with something almost identical. It says, And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So those references twice give us a picture of the fact that there are names, the names, of the saved, written by God in the book of life. And when were they written there? They were written there clearly before the foundation of the world because those who are not in the book did not have their names written in the book before the foundation of the world. These are an indication that God planned the redemption of the elect before the dawn of time, before the foundation of the world. If God had the names of the saved written in his book before the foundation of the world, it makes sense that those are the elect whom the Father sends the Son to save and to whom the Spirit applies redemption and God's eternal seal. Now, we're going to back up and see the eternal plan of God in the golden chain of Romans chapter 8. And that'll take us to the end for today. Romans 8. I do want you to see this. It's so good. Romans 8, 29 and 30. And I know those verses are in the right chapters. Why do I feel like some of you feel better if I make a mistake? Just a little bit. Like, oh, good. I am terribly, terribly human. You got Romans 8, 29 and 30? Look at this. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. 
And those going to be justified, he also glorified. So here we see something amazing that took place among the persons of the Trinity. God foreknew a people. Now, if you know the word of God well, that you'll know that that's not a phrase that means that God had simple intellectual knowledge of facts about a people. That word, that foreknew word, is a word that indicates that God knew a people as his own beforehand. That God set his love on a people beforehand. Well, what's the plan of God for these people upon whom he set his love beforehand that he foreknew? He predestined them, called them, justified them, and glorified them. That's written in a past tense to indicate that nothing can stand in the way of the accomplishment of this plan. How's it done? God the Father predestined the people in perfect concert with the Son and the Spirit. In that predestination, the plan was made for the Son to go and accomplish the redemption of that predestined group that they might be justified. The calling of the people to their justification is a work of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. The glorification of those people is something that is promised to them by the Spirit who seals them and indwells them to the day of redemption. And listen really closely to me here because this is important. There is no hint of any break in any part of that chain. None who are predestined, fail to be called. None who are called fail to be justified. None who are justified fail to be glorified. All of this work of redemption is the unified plan of the Godhead. It's what I'm calling the covenant of redemption. Now, why is the covenant of redemption important to Christians? I think we've answered this question each of the past two weeks and the answer is not changing today. The covenant of redemption clarifies for us how our doctrine of the Trinity and our doctrine of salvation are perfectly connected. Because God is always perfect, always unified among the persons of the Trinity, working in perfect concert with one another, we can be confident of the fact that God's plan of redemption will be perfectly accomplished without any failure. We're not serving a God who's reacting to man's sin by just doing his best to fix it. We're not serving a God who's trying his best but is somehow subjected to our whims. God is not trying to do what he can with the hand he was dealt. No, God made the plan. God decided the plan before there was time. Then God created the world and accomplished his plan exactly as he intended it. The doctrine we've studied over the past three sermons truly helps us to see the big picture of God's holy word. Knowing the eternal plan of God enables us to make sense of the types and the shadows in the Old Testament that find their fulfillment and their substance in the New. We know the Trinity better. We understand the loving agreement of God better here because we see the covenant of redemption. 
And we begin to, to grasp doctrines like election, predestination, atonement, justification, all the rest better as we see that this is an eternal plan from God that God will absolutely perfectly carry out. Christian, this doctrine should give you comfort and hope. Are you a Christian today? Listen to this. God planned for your salvation. God accomplished your salvation. God applied your salvation. And God will perfectly, absolutely complete your salvation. You need never fear that he will lose you. You need not fear failing your way out of the kingdom. God has you and God will keep you. How glorious is it? Think about this, Christians. How glorious is it to see that your redemption was planned in eternity past and accomplished two millennia ago. Your salvation is not based on your goodness. Your salvation is not based on the strength of the faith that you can muster. If you're saved, you're saved because the Father lovingly gave you as a gift to the Son who lovingly purchased your salvation by His blood and your salvation was applied to you by God's Holy Spirit when He brought you to spiritual life and saving faith and all the work of your salvation, every last bit, is the work of an unfailing holy God who made you. It's good, guys. It's good. Just even stepping out of my notes, have you ever thought about this? When did Jesus die for you? 2,000 years ago. When was it planned? Forever ago. That means that that dark corner of your life that you think is unforgivable, God had that in mind. God knew it before he planned, promised, accomplished, or applied your redemption. You don't have to make up for your weaknesses because Jesus died for you in your weakness. Do you see the glory of that? Now, we don't wallow in and stay in our weakness, and we should see that there's a major problem if we don't touch those weaknesses. But your salvation is not based on your goodness. Because if your salvation was based on you doing something good without God doing it first, you're dead. This doctrine should move you to worship and thanksgiving. You can see if this picture is so eternally grand, you didn't influence God toward your salvation. You are an object of God's grace, so give him praise. Be humble. Rejoice in his mercy. And finally, to the Christians, I'm going to say this. This truth should make you share the gospel with greater joy and greater boldness. I think one of the falsest arguments that can be made by anyone who opposes the doctrine of election, the doctrine of redemption, or the covenant of redemption, I think one of the falsest, most inappropriate objections 
is that if you believe this, you won't share the faith. No. This makes you share the faith with greater joy and greater boldness. Because if God has a people out there he intends to save, but you don't know who they are, you, under the authority of God, are eager to carry the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to everybody in the world. Because get this, God is going to save people you think are unsavable. God is not going to fail. There are people you don't think could ever be saved who have their names written in the book of life and are just waiting for someone to bring them the gospel so that the Spirit can bring their hearts to life and they will believe in Jesus and God gives you the privilege of being part of that. He may use you in your weakness, in your stuttering, in your writing down the wrong references to Bible verses. He may use you to help somebody enter his family as he predestined before the dawn of time. Don't you dare tell me that this would make you not share the faith. But what if you don't know Jesus? Why in the world would God allow you to hear this teachy, doctrine-heavy, passage-heavy lesson? Maybe it's possible that the reason God's letting this fall on your ears is that he intends for you to be among the elect. That he intends you to be redeemed by Jesus. That he has your name written in the book of life, even if you don't know it yet. Listen to me, don't stress about who is and who isn't predestined. That's really none of our business. Don't stress about how predestination works. That's really not much of our business either certainly do not elevate your own understanding to a place where you think you get to judge whether God is right for how God has done things. Instead, understand this glorious truth. All who turn from sin and believe in Jesus are saved. That's what you need to know. Everybody who turns away from sin and puts their trust in Jesus is saved. All who stop trying to be the master of their own lives and who instead cry out to Jesus for mercy, Jesus, please forgive me, please save me. Every one of those will have eternal life. Don't try to figure it all out. Just know that you're guilty. Know that you need the grace that only Jesus can give. Let go of controlling your life. Cry out to Jesus, entrust your soul to Jesus, and be saved. Let's pray together, friends. Lord, it has been good to study this. It's heavy. It's rich. For some folks, it's pretty darn confusing to wrestle through all the complicated things, and I get that. And honestly, for me... I recognize there's so much more here than I really know. But I would ask you, God, have mercy on us to help us to understand. And where we can't understand, have mercy on us to help us believe anyway. Bring people to Jesus, give us hope and confidence in Jesus, and let us rest in the joy of our salvation. That we pray in Christ's name. Amen.